I'm Groot. He hates ads. I'm Groot. On anyone, not just himself. I'm Groot. One minute you think someone has a weird-shaped head, the next minute you realize it's just dull content and spoilers. That's why you don't like hats? And now, Binge Mode Marvel. Both Yondu and David Hasselhoff went on kick-ass adventures and hooked up with hot women. And fought robots. I guess David Hasselhoff did kind of end up being my dad after all. Only it was you, Yondu. I had a pretty cool dad. What I'm trying to say here is sometimes that thing you're searching for your whole life, it's right there by your side all along. You don't even know it. Welcome to Binge Mode Marvel, proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, Editor-in-Chief of TheRinger.com. What a great website. Joining me today, now that he's finished telling me the name of the man what sealed his fate, it's your favorite Ravager, Jason Concepcion. Mal Scrotum Hat was my second choice, but my first choice is <laughs> after Taserface. So really my 1B is Binge Mode Marvel, where we're exploring the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Infinity Saga and the comic book lore that inspired it as phase four of the MCU nears. Please make the journey to Sovereign with us by following this podcast on Spotify or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Give us the five-star ratings or the colors of Agord will never flash over your grave. Which is <laughs> really a tough thing to hear. If you're looking <laughs> to catch up on our prior seasons or listen to them again, you can find our entire archive. Binge Mode Game of Thrones, Binge Mode Harry Potter, Binge Mode Star Wars, Binge Mode Weekly for free, exclusively on Spotify. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans and which is an excellent place to discuss where to find Anulax batteries. And don't forget to head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our Binge Mode merch. Fits comfortably under an aero rig. Mm, love those aero rigs. Rough on the nipples, though, you know? Last time on Binge Mode Marvel, we watched Pangborn stuff the stat sheet as we chatted Pangborn. about Dr. Pangborn, Strange. baby. <laughs> A lot of excitement about Pangborn on Twitter. Really fun. And today, we're diving deep. Deep! Into 2017's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. As always here on Binge Mode, spoiler warning, we will be going deep on details from this film, the prior Guardians film, all three phases of the MCU to date, and the wider Marvel canon. Yes. So don't let Mantis put you to sleep, because it's time to head to Ego right after this. I'm good. Mal, you Earthers have hang-ups, but at least you also have the plot points. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happens in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 by opening the Bifrost and accessing the knowledge Missouri, 1980. Anywhere specifically in Missouri or just decades before? Just <laughs> Chase Daniels' high campaign. Yeah. 
A man from space, you might call him a spaceman, declares his love for a woman, Meredith Quill, and shows her the strange organism that he's planted in the woods. What says love? Like showing someone a strange organism that you've planted in the woods behind a Dairy Queen. We will soon discover that he is the human form of ego, the living planet, Peter Quill's father. Homeworld of the Sovereign, 34 years later, the Guardians take down an interdimensional beast, threatening the Sovereign's Anulax batteries, the source of their power grid. Ayesha, the Sovereign leader, pays the group a handsome reward for their work. Nebula, Gamora's sister, captured while attempting to steal those very same batteries. Ayesha takes note of Peter's alien ancestry. Yeah, does she take note of anything else of Peter's in that sequence? She takes note of uh, the fact that she'd like to, just for research purposes, spend yeah. some time with him. Mm-hmm. Purely academic. Let's make yeah. some little Star-Lords the old-fashioned way, folks. The Guardians are flying to Xandar to collect Nebula's bounty. When they're intercepted by the Sovereign's remote-controlled drone fleet, all of the Sovereign basically acting like they're in Ready Player One here. Why are they in pursuit? Because Rocket stole a pocket full of Anulax batteries just because, right? They're a bunch of Jason. Everyone said they That's were a bunch of douchebags, but clearly it's not the case. <sighs> As the Milano plunges into a quantum asteroid field, Quill and Rocket haggle over control of the ship. The Sovereign's still in pursuit. A being intercedes, taking out the Sovereign fleet, allowing the Guardians to make the jump out of the system to the planet Bearheart. The Milano, though, is totaled, torn in half. Petey whales for the... Do we give it to the Milano, which is the ship? <laughs> I don't think so. It's a good ship, though. You know, think of all yeah, of the... Yeah, but it's... Think of it's all just of a ship. the ejaculate in there, you know? Think of how many potential progeny we lost. I, I think we find that the uh, the apple does not fall too far from the tree in terms of the uh, spreading of ejaculate across <laughs> space. Spoiler alert. The stranger who helped him escape introduces himself. His name is Ego. I'm your dad, Peter. Followed 30 seconds later by, I gotta take a whiz. Charming introduction for Ego. Gotta say, we were texting and, and slacking about this on New Year's Day during the Bama Notre Dame playoff game, some real, real similarities in big game situations between the Golden Domers of Notre Dame and the Golden Domers of the Sovereign. Can't come through in the playoffs. Tough stuff for them. You suck, Zylak. On Contraxia, Yandu, fresh off a of fuck with a sex robot. And his crew of Ravagers <laughs> enjoy some rest and relaxation. He looks so sad in that sequence. Turns out that Yandu is persona non grata among the wider Ravager faction for kidnapping children. We don't Whoops. deal in children. And one of those children, of course, was a young Peter Quill. Ego hired Yandu to deliver his son, but Yandu kept him, we will discover over the course of the film. Why? It's not just because he was a skinny kid good for thieving. Although that was part of the equation. <laughs> Made it easier. 
Right, certainly. <laughs> to finally do a face turn here for Yandu. Stakara Gord, a legendary Ravager. Starhawk, more on him later today in the six. Unbelievable. I mean, <laughs> unbelievable get the bag performance from Sylvester Stallone. An all-time MCU get the bag performance. I think it's it's in the running for the top spot. We talked a lot in the first Guardians pod about Glenn, Glenn Close, right? Like top of the power rankings. But we get 45 seconds of screen time from Sly. And the lines that he says are unbelievable. He gets some great lines as well as like you can hear him having conversations in the backgrounds of other scenes. Yes, Clearly, Sly Stallone has the juice to get some quality dialogue from an MCU production. Michelle Yeoh in here taking down the bag. Like people are getting the bag in this movie. As as they should go for it. I quite enjoyed Cram putting a bunch of Starhawks dialogue into a Rocky context. Yo, Adrian, it seems like this establishment is the wrong guy and I'm disreputable. It's just an amazing performance. Unbelievable. And Sakar, we learn, cast Yandu and his crew out of the Ravagers for violating the code. Honor among thieves, after all. Just then, Aisha rolled inch by inch, centimeter by centimeter across the snowy terrain arrives to hire Yandu to track Quill and the Guardians. She really wants those fucking batteries, Jason. There will not be a slight against the sovereign people. Do you think they call it contraxia because that's where you contraxia (laughs) uh, sexually transmitted diseases? Ego uh, seems like a pretty chill guy initially. He invites the Guardians to his planet where he promises Mm -hmm. to reveal more and more secrets and, crucially, to be the dad that Peter always dreamed of. Rocket and Groot stay behind on Bearheart with the Milano to guard Nebula. Mantis, Ego's associate and an empath, bonds with Drax, and on the way to Ego's planet, Mantis reads Peter and reveals to the group that he is in love with Gamora. On the one hand, tough moment. On the other hand, like, did anyone have any doubts about that? I know, people, it's not like there was a lot of choices (laughs) out here in space. (laughs) Yandu's Ravagers close in on the wreck of the Milano and Rocket is ready, folks. Boy, is he ready. His defenses, creative and varied, neutralize swarms of Ravagers. But Yandu's arrow stops Rocket short. Yandu, though, always full of surprises, offers to leave the Guardians alone in exchange for the batteries, which he intends to sell. Doesn't want to actually hurt Quill. Feeling that he's gone soft. Yandu's men... Led by Taserface himself, scrotum hat here on binge mode, mutiny. And then Nebula, freed by Baby Groot. Tough moment here for Baby Groot, though he's learning and growing every day. (laughs) Stuns Rocket and blasts the fin right off Yondu's head, which I have to imagine has a severe effect on the central nervous system. I, I mean, it's it. tough. I it's I apparently it didn't really do any lasting damage. He can just get another fin and just pop it mm-hmm. on. On Ego's planet, he reveals that he is a celestial, an ancient race of cosmically powerful beings. He tells the Guardians that he created a human body for himself in order to search for the meaning of life. And that's how he came to meet Meredith Quill, Peter's mom. He's been looking for Peter ever since. 
And when he heard that a human man held an infinity stone and survived, he knew that that was his son. Later, Ego teaches Peter how to use some of his latent celestial powers. Multiple red flags in that sequence. We'll get to that later. Yeah. <laughs> I have some notes for Peter Quill on how he responds to all of this. Mantis reveals that she's less Ego's assistant and more his indentured servant. Her job is to soothe Ego, helping him to sleep, but she's just there to serve his whims. Meanwhile, Yandu and Rocket, with help from Groot and Craglin, full of remorse, he didn't want to do a mutiny, Jason. He didn't want to. He didn't want it to go that far. <laughs> Take back control from Taserface and the mutineers, and head off to find the Guardians. But not before Scrotum Hat, in his final moments, manages to send their coordinates to the Sovereign. Nebula arrives on Ego and attacks Gamora. She defeats her sister and lets her know about the pain she feels from her relationship with Thanos. Meanwhile. Eagle tells Peter that, like him, he will be immortal as long as light burns within the planet. He hopes that Peter will take up his mission to expand himself across the cosmos. Some more warning signs there from Ego. <laughs> it's really all right there in the name, Jason. Concerning. It's like the it's like the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants or the Masters of Evil, <laughs> like any of these groups that put evil in the name. You got to be careful with the branding. What name is worse than Ego in terms of potentially getting Quill to realize that something foul might be afoot here? It's very textbook it's narcissist. Not a good one. World domination is my goal. Mantis tells Drax that Ego is dangerous. At the same time, G Gamora and Nebula find some supporting evidence in the form of a mountain of bones in the it's very, very of the tough. planet down in the caverns. Mantis tells them, yeah, um, those are the skeletons of Ego's dead children. There's a lot of them, by the way. I mean, it's, it's what like want. thousands of, uh, you know, like just it boggles the mind. It's very many bones. <laughs> it's like you slid down into the Chamber of Secrets and landed on all of those skeletons there. My God. Very tough. Ego tried to use them as batteries, this was why he had Yandu bringing them to him, to power the light, power his expansion. But none of them possessed the celestial gene until Peter. Gamora, Nebula, Drax. Drax, by the way, getting to uh, have a little, enjoy a little role reversal in this film with the, we had it under control bit. And Mantis decide to rescue Peter from Ego, who, real record scratch moment here. Crazy. In the movie and in poor Peter Quill's life, reveals that, yes, uh, I put the tumor in your mother's brain. What? Real tough. Couldn't feel myself pulled back to Earth, Jason. Extremely tough look for my guy, Ego. <laughs> Yandu, Rocket, and Groot arrive and join the fight against Ego. Peter tells them, the way to kill Ego is to attack the source of his power in the center of the planet. Just then, the Sovereign arrives to take revenge on the Guardians. The battle rages above the planet while Groot attempts to deliver a bomb to Ego's core. That ore is tough to get through, Jason. It's it like really a game is. of Settlers it's of Catan. So valuable resource, you know? Just when the fight against Ego seems lost and the seeds that he planted on worlds across the universe are erupting. I have some notes, by the way, for the people who after the first eruption of the blobs stop 
to just stand there and look at it and are then consumed by the resumption of the blob expansion, maybe don't stand there. Peter, inspired by memories of his mom and his Walkman and other special bonds of his life and guiding words from Yandu about using his heart, fires up the old expecto Pac-Man! Fights back using his celestial powers with ego distracted. Rough sequence here for ego. <laughs> Groot honestly could not be cuter. Just one it's, of the most just, marvelous creations in recorded human history. Off the charts. <laughs> Every part of it. I mean, obviously the whole battery protection sequence at the beginning while he's dancing and <laughs> so precious. And then the, the sliding <laughs> with the bomb toward the quarries. He's the best. Delivers the bomb. Presses the right button after all. We knew you could do it, Gritty. And then, in a shockingly emotional and impactful sequence, Yandu sacrifices himself to save Quill from the dying planet. Steve, no PD Wells for Ego. Fuck that guy. However, give us some PD Wells for Yandu because he didn't want to go. I don't feel so good. I mean, even that is kind of tough, to be honest with you. Great redemptive arc for Yondu. I'm all in. <laughs> I mean, we're talking, when do you think he realized that the kids were being killed? By kid 100 or kid 10,000? Well, it's a lot to come back from. I'll say that. That's a- It's a lot. It's a, mount, it's a legitimate mountain of child bones. That's a rough one. But Jason, it was good enough for the Ravagers because he heard the horns of freedom and he, he saw did. the colors of Ogor, damn it. He heard the horns. I mean, how can anybody ever take Starhawk seriously again after that? Made a whole big speech about how Yandu would never have a Ravager funeral and then all of this. It was lovely, though. I got to be honest. Not ashamed to say. Sobbed in the movie theater like a baby during this sequence. Weeping. Weeping gets me every time still. The Guardians cremate Yandu. Kraglin gives Peter a Zune to replace his Walkman. Peter, in turn, gives Kraglin Yandu's arrow. Nebula joins the Guardians. Nebula running as soon as she possibly can. What a movie for Nebula. In the five, yes, that's right, five stingers, <laughs> a few of which we will talk about in more depth later today in the six. Craglin works on his Yaka Arrow form, not to great success. Sakar assembles some guardians of his own. Aisha looks upon her creation, the cocoon of Adam Warlock. Quill has some parental feedback for asshole teenage Groot. His room is a mess. Tree limbs everywhere. And finally, the Watchers exhausted walk away from Stan Lee, who Jason has so many more stories to tell. More on that later today. Jason. Yes. I call it the binge spansion. It is my purpose. And now it is yours as well. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's power up the arc reactor and the story. The defining theme of this episode is rebellion. 
Let's talk about this film's development. It was released in May 2017. It is the third film in Phase 3. It's the second film in the Guardians franchise. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is currently set for 2023 as a part of Phase 4. Creative team, produced by Kevin Feige, written and directed by James Gunn. And as we discussed in our first Guardians episode, Marvel and Disney fired Gunn in 2018 after old tweets surfaced in which he was joking about topics such as rape, and pedophilia, truly awful stuff. The tweets were hideous and Gunn apologized. In October 2018, Warner Brothers and DC signed on Gunn to make the Suicide Squad sequel. And in March 2019, Disney and Marvel reinstated him on Guardians 3. Uh, much like the previous film, music plays a huge role in the franchise. Tyler Bates, once again, scoring the film, and Gunn, once again, crafted another awesome mix, which comprises the soundtrack to the film. Incredible soundtrack. Do you have a favorite between Awesome Mix Volume 1 and Awesome Mix Volume 2? Um, it's probably Volume 1 still. Volume 2 is good. Volume 1 is the best one for me. This was the first rewatch where I thought, Maybe I like volume two better, but they're both tremendous. I have a, I have a question for you, actually. Sure. You're a expert when it comes to musical composition. Sure. Gunn always talks about how Bates writes his score first and they film the movie to the score rather than the other way around, right? Rather than Bates scoring to the movie that's already been filmed. How rare is that? That strikes me as like extraordinary. That definitely is it as i understand it would be rare it's hard to do that because like i guess he's writing to the script right yeah like he's just embedded in the creative process yeah he he, he does it i guess to the script and to the storyboards i also feel like uh you know chris and andy uh, talk often about director bullshit this feels like a thing that is tr maybe tr somewhat true but definitely not all the way true come on mm -hmm. You're, there's like this is a movie with heavy CG, you know, that requires the collaborative efforts of, you know, dozens of engineers, visual artists, the actors themselves, stunt people. And they're just going to wait for Tyler Bates to get his uh, score together. Like, I feel like this is on some level not quite true or at least not as true as it is being offered to us. That's just my feeling. As usual, I have, uh, I have bought in on the myth and the legend. <laughs> How about the cast? Well, primarily, of course, are guardians that we met in the first film, a lot of returning faces and characters, but some new folks in the mix, including, of course, Kurt Russell as Ego, the fact that Incredible Ego would casting. be the father was obviously a closely guarded secret for a long time because that's a change from comics canon, which we'll talk about more later. There's always, you can always count when somebody of Kurt Russell's stature comes into the MCU on stumbling across just miraculously entertaining interviews. This is no exception, this casting. So many gems out there about joining the MCU, about joining the Guardians franchise, about playing Ego. This is one of my favorites. This is from a Screen Rant interview <laughs> with Rob Keyes, who visited the set while the film was being made and spoke to Kurt Russell, who said, quote, 
So the great fun is for me, I didn't know anything about this world, the Guardians world, you know? I was doing publicity for Hateful Eight and suddenly people started saying, is it true? Are you going to play Peter Quill's father? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) 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 This just kills me. (laughs) I love it. Oh my God. Obviously, David Hasselhoff is in the movie both there to mock Peter during a high-tension scene with Ego and then in a very memorable musical sequence that we'll talk about more in the six. Palm Clementif as Mantis, a wonderful character, a wonderful performance. Elizabeth DeBecky as Aisha. DeBecky Hive Assemble. All six foot three of her. She could play the one, the two in an N- on an NBA team. Like, she's got the size and the length to do it. She can play anyone and anything. She's about to play Princess Diana in The Crown. Unbelievable. And then, as we mentioned, Sylvester Stallone as Stakar, a.k.a. Starhawk, <laughs> one of the most wild stuff. Astounding performances in MCU history. What about Rotten Tomatoes? We love to use it. 85% fresh amongst critics, 87% amongst audience members. People like the movie. Box office, 389.8 million domestically, 473.9 internationally, 863.8 million globally. We didn't get to a bill, but this is pretty good. So here's a question, Mallory Rubin. Do you like this movie? Thanks for asking, Jason Concepcion. <laughs> like this movie. I do. I had a ton of fun seeing it in the theater. We've talked a lot over the run about our first memories with these movies and the theatrical experience, which of course right now, especially during quarantine, I think we think back on even even more often and miss. The Guardians films are some of the most memorable theater-going experiences for me. I do not like the like volume two as much as the first Guardians film, to be clear. I think that part of that is that the first Guardians movie is a superior film. And part of it is just that the the surprise factor, the absolute shock and delight of experiencing the Guardians world and franchise for the first time is a pretty hard thing to replicate. However, I think that while the plot of this movie isn't quite on par with the first film, the mm-hmm. final 45 minutes to an hour or so, the, the pace at which the mythology and canon expands. And then, you know, in the case of Peter's celestial powers, for example, he levels up in a real hurry. And then suddenly Very we're made fast. to believe that doesn't matter anymore because we're, we're you know, told that the, the light has gone out. So thus his celestial powers have gone out. I have some questions about that, but that part of it is not quite as strong. However, I think a lot of the ingredients that made the first Guardians movie such a sensation are present here. The characters are delights. The chemistry between them, both as a group and in really any iteration of the pairings, is always so pleasant and fun and engaging. The visual palette of the film is mesmerizing. It always looks cool. The music is tremendous and it really enhances the immersive 
quality of the film, especially because of the way that the diegetic sound is used. You really mm-hmm. feel like you're in the ship listening with them. You have the Walkman in your hand, too, or the Zune. Shouts to Zune. Great look for our guy, Zune. And I got to say, I, maybe I'm in the minority here, but I found that <laughs> I found the end of this movie like really emotionally impactful. I really did. Not just Yandu's sacrifice and the funeral, but the way that you feel Peter maturing and Rocket too. all of the characters gaining that perspective on their own lives. Like, I just love, love that little woman when Peter's listening to father and son. And the way that he looks down at Groot, it just hits. That absolutely hits. That absolutely hits. Speaking of Yondu's sacrifice, Steve, give us approximately a million Petey <laughs> whales at once for the unnamed and anonymous children <laughs> delivered to their deaths by Yondu. Oh, God. Probably it's a, it's a knowingly one. over the years. You know, he said he didn't know what was happening to them. Now, he did still steal them from their homes and their families. Which, so then why did he come back from Peter? Why did, he save, why did he save Peter if he didn't know? then he knew. And At so- that point, he knew, you know, and it was time to make a change <laughs> to reassess his choices. I feel the same way, you know, like the, the, the central kind of emotional through line of Peter struggling with his history, with his relationship, very short relationship, unfortunately, with his mother with his desire for a dad and the kind of um, narrative that he spun around himself to like make up for that kind of hole, that, that loss I found to be really impactful. And same with you, like the, the cat Stevens drop at the, at the end is just kind of like programmed to hit people. It felt, you know, it's just absolutely lands. Same as you. I, I found the first Guardians film to be more satisfying just because it, it felt like a more unified story. This is a, this is a, uh, a tale that takes place, you know, in several locations at once um, with a bunch of threads that don't really tie together emotionally. They tie together geographically. You know, it's like Gamora and Nebula reunite and begin the process of healing from their relationship with Thanos, but that doesn't really tie into the main story so much as it just delivers Nebula to the group. Um, the same with Yondu and his ravagers and the mutiny that ta- that just kind of like takes place off to the side. Drax and Mantis, that kind of relationship develops in parallel to everything else that's going on. It just ha- so happens that they're in the same physical location as everybody else. So it's kind of more a disparate story in that sense, but still very exciting. You know, I'm watching it in 4K. It looks amazing. It absolutely looks, yeah. it looks amazing. Like the first fight with the interdimensional beast is like a visual feast. And it's really just like the, the appetizer for the movie. Um, it little baby Groot dancing around is so delightful. Riding that Orlone in high def, and it looks great. It's so great. There's a great. There's a wonderful little wink to the audience when uh, the Ravagers are debating what to do with Groot, <laughs> and it's like, can I can I smash it with something? One of them says, and then another cute. Ravager replies, No, it's he's way too cute. <laughs> Absolutely can't do anything to him. Yeah, uh, which is a wonderful <laughs> sly wink to the audience. Don't worry. Nothing is nothing bad will happen to Groot except getting some 
space alcohol poured on him. Poor Groot. He's also like absolutely vicious, like even more vicious than he was as an adult. Like he is savage as a baby. I mean, he cut off someone's toe. (laughs) He is just like an absolute (laughs) murderer. Yeah, there's a lot of murder in the movie. There's a ton of murder. <laughs> so much there's murder. a lot of casual murder. I mean, Yandu like kills his entire crew, <laughs> his entire mutinous crew, like in, in mere seconds, two minutes. Yeah, yeah, like in a very <laughs> short amount of time, he kills. Where them. does where does the arrow rank for you on? Oh my god, it's amazing. MCU weapons you'd like to have because on the one hand you see the damage in both movies you see the damage that it can do and how quickly and it's like man that is unbelievable. Plus you have that bond with the arrow the way that you control it as he'll say through his heart. The only real knock against it is what happens to him here. You're very vulnerable if someone can just take out your fin. Yeah, I agree. The fin, the fin is the thing, and also it's like you can't whistle everywhere you can whistle in space i guess if you have some sort of covering if you're like in an environmental suit or something like that but i feel like yeah it is it is vulnerable it wouldn't be the one that i would personally choose to wield but it is incredibly effective as we saw and we don't know what it can't pierce but it certainly seems to be able to pierce everything up to alien metals and alloys can it pierce like vibranium can it can it go through mjolnir because like what what's actually stop can it pierce iron man we don't know that but it is incredibly effective should we talk about the actual movie let's talk about it let's start with quill and ego yondu little gamora in there too we'll have another gamora section in a few minutes the film opens with Meredith Quill singing. Not with Cap Skull. Sorry, Cap. Should have locked down Laura Haddock during the Bond store way back when. But with the man that we will learn is Peter's dad. Ego. It is 1980 in Missouri. And they're cruising along an open road singing Looking Glasses Brandy. A song that will become a plot point with Ego and Peter later in the film when Ego tells Quill that they're the sailors in the song called Back to the Sea. and. The real bummer of this opening on a rewatch is that Meredith and Ego look really, really happy together. Young and in love and full of hope and possibility for what awaits. Meredith is joyfully belting the lyrics. There's a girl in this harbor town and she works Laying whiskey down to say brandy Fetch a mother around Ego calls her his river lily, just as he will later tell Peter that he used to. But Ego's plans have quite literally already taken root. They are making their way toward the woodlands behind the aforementioned Dairy Queen. Great look here for our guy, Dairy Queen, so that Ego can show Meredith his seedling. How much did Meredith Quill know about the man that she loved? That's one of the things you find yourself thinking about watching this scene. The germ of his intention, the things that he would do to her to ensure that he could bring it about, surely she knew nothing about that. Soon, it'll be everywhere, all across the universe, he says here. Well, I don't know what you're talking about, but I like the way you say it, she said. But she knew that he wasn't of this earth. As she says here, while witnessing this and hearing this speech from him, I can't believe I fell in love with a spaceman. Now, eight years later, 
as Meredith lays dying in her hospital bed in the opening scene from the first Guardians film, killed by the tumor that we will learn Ego planted in her head, she tells her son, Peter, you're so like your daddy. You even look like him. And he was an angel composed of pure light. Think back to the letter that she left Peter with, Awesome Mix Volume 2, that he finally reads at the end of the first film, decades after she gave it to him upon her death. You were the light of my life, my precious son, my little Star-Lord. She gave him that name, Spaceman and Star-Lord. Meredith's nickname for her son, the sobriquet that he would then adopt as he carved out a new life for himself in the sky and the cosmos is because of the father who ultimately tried to turn him into a battery to power his expansion. It is honestly tragic. We think often of the Guardians movies as lighthearted and humorous, but this is tragic. The Guardians franchise, these movies are about a lot of different things, right? The search for purpose and meaning, the search for family, the search for ravager suits that maybe hang a little looser around the gooey bags, as Tony would say. Very tight fit there. But they're also about finding the clarity and the strength needed to rebel against the truth that you thought had to define your life and maybe even the truth that at certain points you wanted to define your life. It's obvious from the way that both Guardians movies open with scenes of Meredith Quill that she's just incredibly crucial to Peter's story and his life. It also heightens the Eric Voss new rock stars theory we shared in our first Guardians pod about Meredith perhaps being a cosmic being in her own right. I'm going to talk more today in the Sanctum about cosmic entities, but why did Ego's celestial gene manifest in Peter and only Peter instead of all of the other dead children that Yondu delivered to him. Maybe Meredith, or that wonderful crisp Missouri air, was the key. Maybe such a reveal is still to come. Who knows? Here, the focus is on Peter's father and the mysterious nature of his genetic code. What is your heritage, Mr. Quill? Aisha asks him. My mother is from Earth, and your father ain't from Missouri. That's all I know. I see within you an unorthodox genealogy hybrid that seems particularly reckless. <laughs> Not too dissimilar, minus the golden pate from the exchange on Xandar in the previous film, mm-hmm. when Day mentions the anomaly in your nervous system. And Nova says, you're half Terran. Your mother was of Earth. Your father, well, he's something very ancient. Oh, sorry. Uh, you're something very ancient we've never seen before. And that Nova quote seems to negate that the Meredith theory, but again, who knows? We can wreck on these things very easily. They all missed the celestial specificity for a long time. Peter's parentage has been a through line of the journey, the grief he carries for his mom, the desire to meet his real dad, and the skepticism and resentment that's nestled within all those feelings. As we mentioned in our first Guardians pod, Quill's dad in the comics is not Ego, but rather Mm -hmm. Jason of Spartax, equally a jerk, (laughs) <laughs> looks very similar to uh, the way Kurt Russell looks yeah. in this movie. And in a way, uh, Ego isn't Quill's dad in these films either. One of the real emotional hammers of the film comes when Yondu gives his life for Quill and calls him his boy. <laughs> He's your father, but he ain't your daddy. And when Quill in turn says that Yondu is his real father. Much like Gamora and Nebula, who we will talk more about in a bit, their relationship is certainly not perfect. Yondu again delivered millions of children to their deaths on Ego. <laughs> Man, you're really harping on that, huh? It's kind of hard not to harp harp on it when you see the mountain of bones. Oh, God. 
<laughs> and their relationship, their relationship together was obviously quite exploitive and fucked up for a long time. Yes, even, yes. To, though there were many warm feelings, but they pushed through it together. That stuff about my father, Quill says to Gamora when they're back on their ship. Who does she think she is? I know you're sensitive about it, Gamora says. <laughs> Quill has, throughout the entire the film, it really feels like he's in... <laughs> All the best cowboys have daddy issues. Episode of Lost. Great stuff here from Quill. <laughs> the evolution of Quill's relationship with Gamora is pretty entwined with how he assesses his relationships yeah. with his parents. And, and like, not to get too Oedipal about it, it's more that it, it all connects to him processing his own feelings, being introspective, opening up, maturing in ways that make him ultimately more receptive to love and, in the case of Yondu, forgiveness, and also in ways that position him to acknowledge when something is not right for him, is not what he was looking for, like, of course, with ego. Think of how long it took him to open that gift from his mother. Awesome makes volume two. He carried that with him for decades, and Gamora helped him get to the point where he was ready to experience that at last, just as the desire to protect Gamora and their fellow guardians and to avenge his mother's death will be what pulls him out from Ego's spell in the climactic battle. Sometimes everything in life makes sense and it's easy, right? And sometimes it's not, and it doesn't. And you have to stand firm when a lot of other people are telling you something's not going to work. It's like the Peggy Carter quote that yes. Sharon helpfully imparted in Civil War, compromise where you can where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say, no, you move. Drax, for example, means well when he tells Peter that he and Gamora are not meant for each other. There are two right. types of beings in the universe, Drax says, those who dance and those who do not. And then he goes into extreme uh, Roman Roy from succession territory by saying how engorged his nether regions were when he would watch his beloved not move at all. And Jason, you might think that you were dead. And then I hear Roman just saying you're meant to be dead. Anyway, great show. Missed that. Missed that show. But this whole They're filming. <laughs> they're filming. I saw some behind the scenes footage uh, oh my God. last night I, on Instagram. I cannot wait. I can't I wait. Cannot wait. I'm oh. so excited. Has Kendall shit the bed recently? I need to know. <laughs> but this whole exchange with Drax, it doesn't sway Peter in any way. Quite the opposite. It brings out that no-you-move instinct in him, that desire not only to get what he wants, what he thinks is right for him, but also the thing that someone else is telling him he can't have. So after Ego's intervention with the Sovereign and the arrival on Bearheart, it's no surprise that Gamora is the one that Quill opens up to and has opened up to before, we also learned in the scene. Quill's take? I'm not buying it. Ego's sudden appearance uh, does not pass the smell test. And this is for a guy who has to sniff his shirts before he puts them on <laughs> and has, as we mentioned, proudly shared that the inside of his ship is covered with uh, dried semen. <laughs> he knew, this guy knows about smells. Quill amazingly <laughs> thinks Ego's arrival could be a trap. And he's, of course, right. Ego wants to use Quill not to love him, but he thinks it might be the Ravagers or the Kree that's setting the trap. He would never anticipate the exact nature of Ego's deception because he doesn't know what Ego really is and therefore what he really is. Gamora, in an effort to encourage Peter to continue to open up, brings up how Peter, as a kid, would tell other children that David Hasselhoff was his father. 
I told you that when I was drunk. Why are you bringing that up now? I love that story. I hate that story. It's so sad. Peter has longed for a father all his life, has longed to understand this part of him and this part of his mom's life. But as much as he's craved that, he's feared what feeling like he needs something means. He shouldn't, of course, but all the guardians share this in a way, like Quill said to them in, in his iconic speech, they're all losers. I mean, like folks who have lost stuff. This is really, it's really so sad. And it reminds me, I was thinking a lot about MF Doom, who passed away, we learned on Halloween. We're recording this uh, January 3rd. And MF Doom, the rapper, had a lot of tragedy in his life. And then he created this entire like alter ego, which in a way is a lot, it just reminds me a lot of what Peter did, which is create this narrative around himself to help deal with the trauma. And the MF Doom, the rapper, created these various egos around his own identity that would help him like process the various things that, that he went through. It's very sad. Yandu is struggling as well. Our fintop guy looks quite sad, very pensive and empty and full of longing as he's buttoning up his fly after his sexual encounter on Contraxia, looking for real connection, not finding it. He's gruff and tough and has, as chronicled to this point, and as we will continue to chronicle from here, committed his share of immensely foul deeds. He is not without blame or horror, but like everyone else, he's looking to feel something and, and for that something to come in the form of closeness with another person. And also, like many others, he's trying to hide that because he's ashamed of that need, that desire. You can go to hell then, he tells Dakar after spotting him on Contraxia and getting completely, completely uh, it's not even a a hand wave. He is no. shunned publicly He's and absolutely shamed. very yes, very 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 publicly shunned in front of all the other rabbiters. I don't give a damn what you think of me, he says, and we can see quite apparently that that is not true at all. That he cares deeply. He's like Rocket, which is part of why their eventual bond that forms in this film, which we're going to talk about later, is. So interesting and compelling to watch. Again, as we said, it's it doesn't actually matter how long it took him to realize what was happening to them, that they were dying, that they were being used. He still stole them. He kidnapped them. He took them from their families and from their home worlds. He pulled them out of their lives. And only when he found Quill did he repudiate Ego's agreement. It took that long. You may dress like us, but you'll never hear the horns of freedom when you die, Yondu. And the colors of a gourd will uh, never flash over your grave. The way he says colors of a gourd. And the colors me. of a gourd? It's like so. <laughs> like a question, that upward inflection, like there's a question yeah. mark. Yeah. And the colors of a gourd. <laughs> Adrian. <laughs> so funny. But Taserface's mutiny begins in earnest here as. He and the assembled witness this exchange between Yondu and Stakar. It's really, though, about Quill and the favor that Yondu shows him. Based on Taserface's speech, this band of Ravagers, they seem a bit like the Dothraki, right? They follow strength. And when it comes to Yondu, it seems he's going soft. <laughs> and when they find Rocket, on Bearheart, and Yandu decides not to kill him, that's it. That 
seals his fate with the bulk of his troops. They mutiny against him. Even Craglin, loyal fellow that he is, for, for, for now, he's part of the mutiny. The decision is short-lived for him, but in the moment, even Craglin, it, it stems not from Yandu's overall leadership style necessarily, but specifically from picking Quill over them time and time again. It feels like Ego's picking Quill at first, but he isn't. He's picking his own plan. He's picking his own expansion. This guy is named Ego. Remember mm. that. <laughs> On the list of warning signs that uh, your daddy might be an asshole, using that tone while calling your love interest sweetheart, sweetheart, is probably just one or two spots behind his name. Again, being fucking Ego. Celestial like a god, Peter says? Small G, son. At least on the days I'm feeling humble as Drax. <laughs> okay. Are there any other warning signs, uh, listeners, that Ego may not exactly be the doting father in waiting? He claims, well, his explanation of his origin and his identity comes alongside a great hall-sized diorama, a monument to his own history. Concerning. More, more about the uh, my personal theory on what ego might represent in the in the sanctum sanctorum. I don't know where I come from exactly. First thing I remember is flickering adrift in the cosmos, utterly and entirely alone. Over millions of years, I learned to control the molecules around me. I grew smarter and stronger. Not alarming at all. Totally normal <laughs> shit. I wanted more. I desired meaning. Oh, God. So he made himself a body, Drax says. If he's a planet, how can he make a baby with your mother? He would smush her and set out to find life. He made himself a penis, made himself a human body, and for a bit it seems like Ego is just like all of our other Guardians pals, looking for meaning, looking for some kind of connection in this uh, empty galaxy. I want to experience, he says, what it truly meant to be human. He says somehow expecting everyone in the room to believe that he knew what humans were despite thinking there was no other life in the universe. And guess what, friends? They do. Very strange sequence there. Ego, we learn, found Peter thanks to the Power Stone saga on Xandar. Now, this is one more warning for Peter Quill. If only this Peter, like Peter Parker, had a Peter Tingle of his own, it would be activating here. Because sure, Ego presents this information like he found the clue that he needed in his decades-long quest to find his baby boy, but it's really one more indicator, especially in a rewatch, it really stands out, that he's just thirsting for Peter's power. Ego's manipulations are considerable. I knew you must be the son of the woman I loved, he says. And this is, of course, deliberate phrasing, trying to soften Peter to make him more receptive, even as Peter is asking why he left Meredith if he loved her, to him by reinforcing that association with Meredith. I'd love to believe all of this. I really would, Peter tells Ego, but you left the most wonderful woman ever to die alone. When Ego says he has to return to the light, that light that Meredith used to mention, Peter, to his credit, sticks to his line of questioning. Well, then why not come back later? Why send known criminal Yondu <laughs> to get me? How can Ego get Peter to stifle these instincts, these voices of reason within him? By holding up a carrot that is shaped exactly like the father-son time he always wanted. A catch with dad. It's a scene straight out of Field of Dreams and the natural wrapped 
in the cosmos. But it's not just that quality time with Pops. It's an insight into who Peter really is, his identity. What does that anomaly, that mysterious genetic makeup really mean and how will that manifest? Peter has heard Ego explain that he's a planet. He's walked through his presentation. He has looked upon the massive statue of Meredith, real Amaya in Dev's looming Titanic statue vibes here. But activating the light in his own hands, holding the manifestation of that power in his palms is a different thing entirely. Yes, Ego shouts, looking so proud, stopping himself just short of going full palpy, unlimited power here. I- <laughs> I love the kind of slow-mo as he runs out to receive the the ball while they're playing catch. So good. That pride, though, is really greed because Peter has the celestial gene and that is what Ego needs. Peter's processing this all with Gamora by asking her to dance to Sam Cooke. Having Sam Cooke in your soundtrack is just really great. He was mortified when Mantis announced his feelings for Gamora to the entire spaceship. No romantic sexual love for her, but he's leaning in. (laughs) When are we going to do something about this unspoken thing between us? He asks just on the heels of, meanwhile, it's spoken. Just on the heels of the, (laughs) I only hurt myself lyric. The same thing that makes Quill want this closeness is what Gamora fears the past. One of the funniest moments in the MCU comes in Endgame when Gamora from another timeline is just absolutely confused and incredulous <laughs> yeah. that it would be Quill that she ends up with, not just because it's a dig at him, but because of the truth, her surprise makes their actual connection all the more rewarding. Um, it wasn't, it was certainly was not a sure thing. And it was a long time coming. They're so often on different pages, including at this moment, when Gamora filled with unease about ego due to the fear she senses in Mantis tells Quill to pump the brakes. You made me come here, he says. He can't go to Earth where his mother died because his mother died there, and her response is incisive. No, it's because that place is real, and this is a fantasy. This is real. I'm only half human, remember? That's the half I'm worried about, she says. And now, they're both right in a certain sense. It's normal for Peter to want this, to want a connection with his father. And it's also normal for Gamora to take all of this in and to worry about Peter, not just because of what this means for his safety, for Ego Jr.'s safety. Oh, I get it. You're jealous because I'm part God and you like <laughs> when I'm the weak one. Meanwhile, he oh, was like, man. he was mad that she was using a gun when they were fighting the interdimensional beast. Guns were my it, thing. It's, yeah, it's because that's it's swords thing and her thing was, sword, her thing was swords. <laughs> oh, Quill. You were insufferable to begin with, she says. Peter's desire... <laughs> to know his father in his mind, a lifelong reality for Gamora when coupled with the sense that something isn't right and the copious evidence that something is right. It feels like a rejection of Peter is built with the Guardians. I finally found my family. You don't understand that? To which she says, I thought you already had. Boy, of course, Ego sees Gamora as a threat, not only because she's speaking sense, but because she is the kind of draw that Meredith was. For him, the pleasures of mortals that he'll tell Peter they're sometimes deprived of. He can't have Peter focusing on dancing with Gamora. He needs him to power up the plan, the expansion. He quotes the song lyrics to Peter. 
Brandy, you're a fine girl. What a good wife you would be. But my life, my lover, my lady is the sea. He's again using Meredith, something that Meredith loved, Brandy, to convince Peter to abandon his course and bend to Ego's desire, to his will. The sea calls the sailor back, he tells Peter. He loves the girl, but that's not his place. The sea calls upon him as history calls upon great men. This guy is a piece of work. He tells Peter, by the way, if you need more for the sales pitch, you're immortal. Quite a data point there in the consideration set, but there's a rub and one that will come into play when Peter is weighing all of the factors in the final battle. Death will remain a stranger to both of us as long as light burns within the planet, Ego says, meaning if you take that light out, you're not immortal anymore. And that sets the stakes even beyond what Peter will lose in Ego in the dream of finding that relationship with his father, but also for what Peter will lose for himself if he kills his dad. There's a lot of foreshadowing in this scene, in this conversation and exchange, right down to the giant Pac-Man that Peter says he's going to build. Only we can remake the universe, Ego says. Only we can take the bridle of the cosmos and lead it where it needs to go. Now, that is, of course, quintessentially a thing the villain of the movie says, or maybe occasionally the confused and well-intentioned but misled hero like Tony. Could definitely hear Tony saying that. Yes, but for sure. Tony. <laughs> think of who we hear say that across the MCU. Characters like Ultron, Thanos, Loki. It feels like Ego maybe should have waited a little longer to make this move on Peter, longer to reveal his intention. Why wouldn't Peter run after hearing something like that? Or after Ego gives his gives Peter his version of Loki's say goodbye speech to Thor about Jane and Darkwood. Mm-hmm. This day, the next, 100 years, it's nothing. It's a heartbeat. You'll never be ready. Peter's question is not, why are you trying to get me to abandon the woman I love and my friends? It's, doesn't eternity get boring? <gasps> oh, boy. Come on. Come on, Peter. Peter! Yeah. <laughs> Ego tells Peter that the way to fend off eternal boredom is you got to find purpose, man. Yeah. And then he goes into full, I will now explain my evil plan mode. I'm glad you asked that because I wanted to take this time to explain my evil plan. What I did not tell you was how when I finally <laughs> did find it, it was all so disappointing. So tough look for our guy and for Dairy Queen here. And that was when I came to a profound realization. My innate desire to seek out other life was not so that I could walk among that life. Peter, I have found meaning. And he taps his head like the ancient one does in Strange. And using his brand of cosmic magic, he shows Peter eternity. He explains his purpose, his expansion, his impregnating and implanting. He says that life's But one true purpose, which Peter will understand again from the way he treats the inside of his ship, is to, quote, (laughs) grow and spread, covering all that exists, like the inside of the Milano, until everything (laughs) is me. Oh, man. Yeah, troubling. He possesses no consideration for the lives he's ruined. He has no morality whatsoever, no humility or empathy. His procreation stemmed from needing a second celestial to, as he put it, power his expansion. And that's why Peter's there. Only you carried the connection to the light, 
Peter ultimately breaks through his spell, this hypnosis, not because of the threat upon himself, because of the, but because of the people that he loves, his friends. My friends, he says, even while under ego sway. And then he brings up his mother, almost like Harry uh, pushing Voldemort outside of his body, outside of his ability to possess him by thinking of the people that he loves. Yes. Thinking about Peter mentioning boredom there, it does make the stinger with Peter and Groot and Groot <laughs> saying that he's boring all literature. Peter doesn't want to be boring. I returned to Earth to see her three times, Ego says. And I know if I returned to fourth, I'd never leave. The expansion, the reason for my very existence would be over. So I did what I had to do, but it broke my heart to put that tumor in her head. What a terrible moment for Peter, the person he wondered about all his life, the person he longed to meet and know, even when he doubted whether it was right, the person he thought would help him better understand himself is the one who took away the person that he loved the most in the entire world. And Ego insists that he loved Meredith. That's one of the worst parts, one of the most offensive and galling, because he doesn't know what love is, clearly. He is defined in full by his myopia and his greed and his hubris and his selfishness. And Peter, despite all of his faults, is the opposite. He makes a lot of mistakes, of course, as all compelling heroes do, but he follows his heart and tries to follow his sense of what's right. And he learns from those mistakes when he makes them. And here, doing that means turning against his father and what he wanted for so long. And Ego even mocks this desire of Peter's by briefly turning into Hasselhoff's form. It's just a game for Ego. And Peter is just a mark for him to hook with a Walkman now turned to dust. Wild reveal here by Ego. You'd think that he could have kept that one in his back pocket and maybe got away with the whole thing. Yeah, it's like an own goal. No reason to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Ego. It's all there in the name again. Ego. (laughs) What are you doing? I mean, like he had a good shot at this whole thing. He might have had it sewn up if not for that. You made some unforced errors of your own. Ego, my guy. But something else takes shape in its place. And not yet, not the Zune, not yet. Clarity about his past with Yondu. You still reckon that's the reason I kept you around, you idiot? Yondu says of Peter being a skinny kid. Yondu doesn't just escape the exploding pod by gliding down like Mary Poppins holding his arrow, like the stem of an umbrella. Is he cool? Hell yeah, he's cool. To enter the signature hero swing shot along with Nebula and Mantis, he escapes the false perception of his prior life, the one he earned through his actions, the one he cultivated at times through his deflection and defense mechanisms, as he tells Rocket in this film, the one he rebels against here to give Quill what he needs. As Ego tries to stitch his corporeal form back together, he shouts to Peter, you cannot deny the purpose this universe has bestowed upon you, but for Peter, that's not destroying the galaxy. It's being one of the Guardians. Stop pretending you aren't what you are. One in billions, trillions, even more. What greater meaning can life possibly have to offer? Saving other people instead of destroying them? Yeah, I think that's it. Just as Ego is pulling Peter's friends into himself, Yondu chokes out one last lesson. I don't use my head to fly the arrow, boy. I use my heart. Every member of the Guardians carries weight in Peter's life, but no two people could be in this scene at this decisive moment other than Ego and Yondu, the push-pull between his two dads. The one he thought he wanted and the one he's only now realizing was there for him all along 
in his fashion, which is after the <laughs> delivery of millions of children to their deaths on Planet Ego. And on the heels of Yandu's words, Quill sees flashes of himself listening oh to music God. with his mom, which is just every time they hit you with that. Crushing. It yeah. Laughing with Drax, flying with Rocket, looking into Gamora's eyes during a song, learning how to shoot from Yandu. Ego had previously told him he'd need millions of years to learn how to fully use his powers. But with Yandu's guidance and the Patronus-like fuel of these happy memories, Peter's power and purpose surge and he breaks free of Ego's grip on him in more ways than just the physical in this moment. Yes. You're a god, Ego implores him in his final pitch. If you kill me, You'll be just like everybody else. What's Peter's reply? What's so wrong with that? Quill called himself Star-Lord all his life and couldn't wait, as we saw in the first movie, for others to call him that too, to know him by a name that implied greatness. Now, the thing that appeals to him most is being back among those other people. He's ready to die, to sacrifice himself when Yondu flies in to save him and does the same. He may have been your father, boy, but he wasn't your daddy. <laughs> that line gets me. I'm such an easy mark, yeah, Jay. Yeah. Every time it gets me. But he wasn't your daddy. <laughs> As they're flying away. Michael and of course, Rutherford is also so good. He's, he's, he's a, amazing. He's like, amazing. One of the great tertiary characters, and that's in oh, yeah. large part because of how 100% wacky and committed Michael Rooker is to this role. He's just so fun. He is very, very, very into it, having a blast. Of course, Peter doesn't know that there was only one spacesuit, only one arrow rig left. I'm sorry I didn't do none of it right, Yandu says. I'm damn lucky you're my boy. And then he slaps that last spacesuit onto Quill. The only one. And Quill screams as he realizes what's happening and watches Yandu rise into space, freezing to death, looking at Quill, his hand on his cheek, looking into his eyes as he dies, knowing for once, for once, that what he did was right. Yandu, what are you doing? You can't. Yandu! Oh, oh, no, no! Oh, no! A crushing moment, truly a crushing moment, as is the funeral. Quill's realization accompanying him out into the stars, these specks of light and color and love. Earlier, it struck me, he says, Yandu didn't have a talking car, but he did have a flying arrow, referring to Knight Rider and Hasselhoff, of course. He didn't have the voice of an angel, but he did have the whistle of one. Both Yandu and David Hasselhoff went on kick-ass adventures and hooked up with hot women and fought robots. <laughs> I guess David Hasselhoff did kind of end up being my dad after all. Only it was you, Yandu. What could further solidify that for Quill? Other than Yandu giving up his life? Giving him one of the things that gave Peter's life such meaning. Music. The Zune. Which... It's not just handed over, but handed over along with the reveal from Kraglin that Yandu got that for Quill in a junk shop and kept it for him all this time in case he came home. And Peter boots up Cat Stevens' father and son and listens to it with Groot on his lap. 
as we talked about, beautiful moments, so tender. He's the parent now. And the lyrics that are playing out over the scene, just relax, take it easy, you're still young, that's your fault, there's so much you have to know, that little look on Groot's face as he takes the earbud, just an incredibly sweet and moving sequence. And then the wisdom for Quill, look at me, I'm old, but I'm happy, as are we all. Gamora and Nebula, these two, what a pair. (laughs) What a pair. (laughs) The relationship between Gamora and Nebula is uh, quietly one of the most consequential in the entire MCU. Nebula, of course, plays a massive role in Endgame in the final fight against Thanos in more than one timeline, motivated by rage and redemption together in turn. And across its many states, rebellion is at the heart of their relationship, rebelling against their instincts to care for each other as children in order to survive, rebelling against the inertia of those survival instincts in order to break away from Thanos, rebelling against doing that alone in order to build new bonds together with the Guardians, with each other. It has never been easy for these two, lest we forget. Nebula spent the entire first movie and a good portion of the second movie (laughs) absolutely 100% dedicated to killing Gamora. Literally to killing her. In the most painful fashion that she could come up with. Uh, She fought them as they were trying to save Xandar from Ronan and the Power Stone. The Guardians wind up on Sovereign battling the Abelisk for the Anulax um, batteries and listening to Quill tell Aisha, I guess I prefer to make people the old-fashioned way because the Sovereign have Nebula, and that's who Gamora wants and wants to deliver to justice on Xandar. And... Nebula's desire is just as fierce, so fierce, in fact, that she can't actually hide it. You know, Quill tells her, you'd think an evil supervillain would learn how to properly lie. Her brief union with the Ravagers in this film is just one of convenience, pure and simple. When Kraglin says, I thought you were the biggest sadist in the galaxy, she replies, that was when daddy was paying my bills. (laughs) Things have changed for Nebula, and they will, again, more than once. But whatever her allegiance is at a given moment, it is unflinching for the time that it is true, as is her confidence in herself that we see in this film that there's a lot more at play there in nuance. I assure you, she tells Taserface, I'm not as easy a mark as an old man without his magic stick or a talking woodland beast. (laughs) What a way to refer to Rocket. But the sad fact is that Nebula's belief in herself spawned not from positive reinforcement or a pleasant life, but from feeling like there was no other choice but to cultivate that. She did not have Thanos' love or Gamora's support growing up. She tells Kraglin the the, the hideous story of their youth when Thanos would pit Nebula and Gamora against each other in training battles. Every time my sister prevailed, she says, My father would replace a piece of me with machinery, claiming he wanted me to be her equal, but she won again and again, never once refraining. Really rough. And in a way, of course, this reflects quite poorly on Gamora. Did she not know what what Nebula was suffering through? But Gamora, Thanos' favorite daughter, as he told Ronan in the first film, while Nebula stood right there listening, was also, of course young and afraid, as she will explain to Nebula at the end of this movie, had also been taken from her family and her home, was also trying to fight for her own survival. Gamora and Nebula both 
eventually rebelled against the hell of their life with Thanos, the cruelty and threat of his Infinity Gauntlet pursuit and what his success would mean for all of the other people who could end up like them or could end up not existing at all. Nebula tells Kraglin that she plans to cut Thanos up until, quote, he knows some semblance of the profound and unceasing pain I know every single day. And the thing is, Gamora would love that idea. But as she says to Nebula at the end of the film, she doesn't know if it's possible. Because for them, when they're rebelling from Thanos, they're moving away from him for a long time without moving toward each other. Nebula moves toward Gamora with gunfire, bearing down on her from above as she arrives on Ego's planet. Gamora's read, psychopath. Battling to the almost death is really nothing new for them, but it is still wild to watch Gamora try to cut Nebula down while carrying a a massive rotary ship turret. Uh, These two have a lot of healing ahead and a lot of anger to work through, but it begins right here. After Nebula's I win, I bested you in combat declaration, shares an I'm rubber, your glue style back and forth that eventually brings out a moment of vulnerability and candor from Nebula. You were the one who wanted to win and I just wanted a sister. You were all I had. Nebula is the one later who says the Guardians, after all they learn of Ego's plans, you're not friends. All any of you do is yell at each other, to which Drax says, you're right, we're a family. And the same is true for Nebula and Gamora. It may not be traditional or clean or easy, but it's what they've worked their way back to choosing, even if they can't quite say it. When Nebula grabs Gamora's, she falls into Ego's pit. Nebula can't bear the tenderness saying, get over it. Later, when Peter says of Yondu, the thing you're searching for your whole life is right there by your side all along and you don't even know it. Gamora goes over to Nebula and expresses some regret, some contrition. I was a child like you. I was concerned with staying alive until the next day, every day, and I never considered what Thanos was doing to you. I'm trying to make it right. Nebula tries to punch Gamora when she reaches to hug her, but she doesn't pull away. And that is progress, step by step, day by day, limb by limb. Oh, those two. How about another surprising pair or, or, or trio, really? Rocket and Yandu, and some, of course, some baby Groot in the mix. You know, Rocket says on Sovereign while stealing the batteries that will put the Guardians ultimately in the Sovereign's crosshairs. They told me you people were conceited douchebags, but that isn't true at all. It is quite a movie for Rocket, who, like many over the course of their lives, tries to blow up his relationships and the good thing while he has it, because he doesn't quite know how to live with that stability and acceptance and joy. Remember Rocket's heart-wrenching speech on Nowhere in the first film. You just want to laugh at me like everyone else. He thinks I'm some stupid thing. He does. Well, I didn't ask to get made. I didn't ask to be torn apart and put back together over and over. It's hard for Rocket to let people in because of what he's been through, because of how he came to this place. He is a nonconformist by nature, but he still wants to be loved. And it's hard to admit that, even sometimes to admit it to himself. Oh, I didn't realize your motivation was altruism, Quill says to Rocket, clearly not understanding what altruism means, but that's neither here nor there. Now, is it heresy of the highest order, as Aisha says, to steal the batteries? Probably not. I think Aisha could maybe stand to just take a beat here for a second. But Rocket is undeniably reckless with the theft, just as he is with the entire dick measuring sequence with Quill. 
Quill, speaking of dick measuring, if what's between my legs had a hand on it, I guarantee I could have landed the ship with it. (laughs) (laughs) The pilot control duel with Star Munch, as Rocket says. (laughs) Star Munch. In the quantum field on the way to Bearheart. I was cybernetically engineered to pilot a spacecraft, Rocket says. You were cybernetically engineered, Quill replies, to be a douchebag. Even at their moment of parting, Rocket can't quite let the walls down. What's his goodbye to Quill? I hope daddy isn't as big of a dick as you are, orphan boy. What's your goal here, Quill says? To get everybody to hate you? Because it's working. Taserface would certainly agree, but amazingly, Yandu, who is noted, brings out the same response in people as Rocket, is able to find common purpose with Rocket. Born out of necessity, sure, uh, of a shared stint in Taserface's brig, but an alliance nonetheless. You might deserve this, but I don't. We gotta get out of here. Yandu opens up to Rocket, telling him about his past as a Kree battle slave, 20 years as a battle slave, before Stakar freed him. And the Ravagers became Yandu's family until he did something that led him astray. That thing, to be clear, stealing millions of children and delivering them to their deaths. <laughs> You're really not ready to let that one go. <laughs> I, am, I feel like I must be the voice for the, again, millions oh, of anonymous God, the, children that Yandu <laughs> delivered to their deaths. Oh, man. It's just, it's a lot of skeletons. It really is <laughs> it's a lot. It's a real lot. <laughs> but Yandu's I was young and greedy and stupid explanation <laughs> isn't so different from what led uh, Quill to pursue the Morag treasure on his own before he even knew what it was. Rocket's a, a relatively understanding audience. Certainly not a kind one. You like a professional asshole or what? Yandi says, as he explains to Rocket, we weren't so different from you and your friends, the only family I ever had, other than, of course, Quill. As this exchange unfolds, the mutineers make sport of poor baby Groot, who may not Terrible. be ready to identify a Yaka Arrow prototype Finn, but he'll get his vengeance during the quartet's escape. Should the Arrow here count as a full member of this? I wonder about the Arrow's sentience and how it works, but it is, it's an incredible piece of gear. A lot of murder in this movie as uh, Yandu cuts through legions of his former mutinous colleagues. Uh, And yet we root for Rocket and Groot fully here. And we even root for Yandu here. Truly do. And that's part of the charm of, again, Rooker is just incredibly charming. We rebel against our own past with him, our own logical minds, because of the way his team turned on him. Not for any reason, but for his tendency to protect Quill. Hideous teeth and all. <laughs> he mocks Rocket at first for wanting to find Quill. For what, huh? For honor, for love? Which will, of course, be exactly why Yondu himself sacrifices himself for Quill mere moments later. And why Rocket works so hard to save everyone despite his bravado here. No, I don't care about those things. I want to save Quill so I can prove I'm better than him. The rich part is that Yondu calls out Rocket for lying to himself while Yondo is doing the exact same thing. I know you push away anyone who's willing to put up with you because just a little bit of love reminds you how big and empty that hole inside you actually is, he says. How does he know? I know who you are, boy, because you're me. What kind of pair are we, Rocket says. But that question gets to the heart of the Guardians franchise's charm, those unlikely pairings. 
the ones that come from pushing away the expected and moving toward the new and the unforeseen are often the most rewarding of all. We expect to see Rocket kick ass in battle, not only holding his own in combat, but innovating and outsmarting everyone around him. The surprise is this moment of vulnerability and introspection and growth that he shares with Yondu. His true triumph in this movie, though, is saying that he won't leave without Quill or Yondu. He's learning to show that vulnerable side of himself, that he cares that it's okay to leave behind the part of his life that uh, made doing so with all but Groot feel impossible. And the same here is true for Yondu. I ain't done nothing right my whole damn life, Rack. You need to give me this. Rocket and Groot give him something much more than that beyond the arrow rig and the spacesuit. I am Groot. What's that? He says, welcome to the frickin' guardians of the galaxy. Only he didn't use frickin'. On the one hand, shades of of Hawkeye. (laughs) Couldn't quite get that F-bomb in. (laughs) Not at all. Shades of Hawkeye welcoming Wanda to the Avengers here. Kind of, like, does he, does Rocket have the power to do this? Does Groot, who is literally a child, have the power to do this? But whatever. On the other, a genuinely cool moment. A knighting of a fellow outcast who needs exactly what the Guardians gave Rocket and Groot. A home and a way to escape his past delivering millions of children (laughs) to their deaths. It's for that same reason, of course, that Rocket can't let Gamora or Drax go back for Quill, even as they scream for him. I'm sorry, he says. I can only afford to lose one friend today. Which, man, Rocket is a fucking savage, dude. Rocket will leave you behind. Had to make the tough call. Had to make the tough call. He did. You can't lose something you never had, and Rocket is clearly reflecting on Yondu's words and insights during his funeral. He didn't chase them away, Rocket says to Quill of the Ravagers, whom Yondu had had alienated and offended, but who still was in their hearts. No, even though he yelled at them and was always mean, and he stole batteries he didn't mean. Well, of course not. (laughs) Rocket being the one who calls the Ravagers is such an incredible little touch. I love that. Drax and Mantis. For a few moments here, what a duo they are and what a character Mantis is. Mantis's intro has to go down as one of the sweetest and saddest in the MCU. What are you doing? Drax asks her on Bearheart. Her reply, smiling. I hear it is the thing to do to make people like you. This kills me. As we'll learn, Ego found Mantis when she was a larva. She was alone, no family. Did he save her while... Sure, but for his own wholly selfish pursuits, which we will come to see over the course of the film, Mantis's decision to defy Ego and help the Guardians takes an astounding amount of courage on her part because doing so means challenging literally everything that she has ever known, the, the entire reality of her life to that point. And she's able to do that because she finds, despite Drax's abrasive and it times cruel demeanor companionship in an unexpected place it's a it's a lot easier to break away from something if you're breaking towards something else she is so excited when quill asks if he can ask her a personal question it's such a delightful charming little moment right and if it's anything other than you specifically not being decapitated by a doorway quill says of her antenna and their purpose i win mantis we learn is an empath. She can feel emotions, sense feelings. Imagine how a gift like that, if you were with someone who understood it, 
and embraced it and consented to its use could bring you closer to someone. But also imagine what a burden it would be if you were with somebody you did not care for and who did not care for you and who was in fact actively vicious and unkind and unfeeling toward you. Mantis's other ability to alter emotions is just one more tool that ego uses. She's not a human being to him. She's just a bomb there to suit his needs and soothe him. And so when she revolts, not just in general, but using that exact power against him, the exact prior source of comfort for him to keep him in check in the climactic battle, it is so fulfilling. A declaration not only of her new intent, but of her agency. The Drax-Mantis bond is weird, Almost every single thing Drax says to Mantis is mean and cringe-inducing. Yeah. We just want to tell her, listen, you're you're worthy of appreciation and love. But Drax, as we learned in the first film, is, is literal to a fault. He speaks what's on his mind and processes what he hears on the merits of the substance of the words, not their subtext and certainly not their intention. He's evolved quite a bit, but this is a part of his makeup, part of his lifelong approach to communication. I am hideous. You are horrifying to look at, yes, but that's a good thing. Oh, when you're ugly and someone loves you, you know they love you for who you are. Beautiful people never know who to trust. And so as painful as it is to hear him say these things to Mantis, we know that his heart isn't, by his standards, certainly in a a bad place. There is true sweetness here. And as Drax and Mantis spend more time together, it emerges from beneath that thick skin. Same thickness on the outside from the inside, as Peter and Gamora <laughs> note. His complex and nuanced nature revealing itself more fully to us. She was like you, he tells Mantis when he's thinking back on his daughter, who murdered by Ronan. Disgusting, Mantis says. Innocent. And she weeps when she touches her axe. His pain is that palpable. The loss he carries that heavy. It makes her trust him because even though he says unkind things, she can feel the goodness of his heart, and the sincerity of his feelings. Her decision to tell Drax what ego is, what he's really planning, stems from that trust that she can feel. We wish Mantis would not flog herself by calling herself stupid. She is doing her very best and better than most, frankly. But finally, Drax tries a different tact, a little pep talk. When Mantis says she can't put ego's planetary form to sleep because of his might, Drax says, you don't have to believe in yourself because I believe in you. Now, sure, he follows it up with, I never thought she'd be able to do it with as weak and skinny as she appears to be. But we know that he meant at least some of that first bit, maybe, hopefully. And what matters more ultimately is that Mantis thought he meant it, and then channeled that into finding that strength in herself, that belief in herself and her own ability and value. As the Guardians watch Yandu's Ravager funeral and films end, passing baby Groot from member to member, so cute, Mantis looks out and says, it's beautiful. Drax replies, it is. And so are you. I believe I believe they call this negging. Inside. I believe they call that negging. Fucking Drax. By the way, shots to Mantis. Drax. By the way, shots to Mantis, who in uh, two consecutive appearances manages to subdue Ego, who is off the charts powerful, a, le- a legitimate planet, a celestial. And then Thanos subdues both of them, saying both times, I don't know how I can hold him. He's extremely strong. But like... That is a power set. Shouts to Mantis, who is much more powerful than she appears. Doesn't even run out of gas here. Gets knocked unconscious. That's the only thing that that gives Ego a prayer. Crushing it. Mantis crushing it. 
Shouts to Mantis. Jason? Yes. There's no unspoken thing. Because the history lesson must be spoken. So please gather the masters of the mystic arts. Head to the sanctum sanctorum of your choosing. Tell us everything we need to know about ego and other key cosmic entities. Can it be true? Asks Thor in the opening page of 1966's Thor number 133. We gazed at a planet and saw it become a living face. We heard it speak to us. Possibly the most daringly imaginative saga you have ever marveled at, reads the editorial balloon at the bottom of the page. This is followed by a trademark Jack Kirby double page spread showing the landscape of Ego, the living planet's landmass. Ego's comics introduction, now he was initially, he was actually debuted on the final page of Thor 132, is quite similar to his introduction to the MCU. Thor, in the midst of one of his, you know, trademark space adventures, arrives on planet Ego and the living planet reads Thor's mind. Guided by the god of thunder's thoughts and memories, Ego transforms the local flora and fauna, erects a castle, and takes the form of an Asgardian man. All this have I created from your own memory, but it gives evidence of merely the slightest fraction of my total power. Ego bellows at Thor. Sick brag. Again, his name is Ego. When Kirby created Ego, he was reaching the (laughs) tail end of an explosive creative run. The same year, 1966, that uh, Ego was introduced in the comics. Kirby also created or co-created Galactus, the Silver Surfer, Black Panther, and the future and the Afrofuturist Kingdom of Wakanda. The collaboration between Kirby and Stanley between 1961 and 1965 produced the Fantastic Four, Doctor Doom, the Hulk, Iron Man, the X-Men, Magneto, and many, many more characters and places and things. And of course, adapted Thor, Loki, and the rest of Asgard from folklore. But by the late 60s, Kirby had grown frustrated with Marvel and what he felt was Stanley's eagerness to take credit for everything. In 1966, Kirby's mind was clearly in the stars considering the other creations of that year, Galactus and the Silver Surfer in particular. I was a student of science fiction, Kirby said in an interview in 1989. I began to make up my own story patterns, my own type of people. Stan Lee doesn't think the way I do, end quote. And you can't help but wonder from that and from Jack's feelings at the time. He would leave Marvel uh, soon after, by 1970. He was at DC, creating more uh, cosmic type of characters with the New Gods line. I can't help but wonder if Ego, now of course we don't know what the creative process here was, but if in some way Ego was Jack's shot at Stan. The all-encompassing planet with the facial hair, one can't help but notice, who says, I have read your mind and I have created everything that I saw there. Ego is, of course, unimaginably powerful. He's an actual, he's a planet, you know, not one of these Plutos in lifts, you know, stretching to say, yeah, I'm, I'm six foot when he's actually five nine. No, Ego is a planet. And every piece of him, the soil, the trees, the sky, is alive. Ego can transform those pieces into anything he wants. He can fire energy blasts that shatter an armada of spaceships. 
And as we saw in his debut, he can effortlessly read minds of any beings that he encounters. He's also a genius because, again, his brain is planet size. What's his weakness then? I mean, the guy's name is Ego. So you figure it out. His plan in the comics, the same as in the movies, Galactic Conquest, proving himself, and and the, the tactic, by the way, is nonsense. He wants to prove himself by defeating Thor with an army of human-sized antibodies, which he will then send forth into the galaxy to conquer. Uh, Thor calls a great cosmic storm into being, battering Ego into releasing him. Ego is so devastated by this loss, so humiliated by it, that he just basically gives up. Never again shall I attack Rigel. Never again shall I seek to invade other galaxies. I shall ever be a world apart until eternity crumbles. I know. Only three years later, in, in, in normal time, Ego would go on to fight Galactus. But to, to be fair, Ego stayed true to his word. It was the big G-man who stumbled across Ego. Now, in the Guardians, the initial Guardians podcast, we talked about the destruction of Xandar and the Nova Corps by the Annihilation Wave. To save uh, Xandar from complete destruction, the Xandarian world mind, the sentient repository of the memories of deceased Xandarians and the keeper of the Nova Force, bonds itself to Richard Ryder, the lone survivor of the Nova Corps, and needing a new home for which to rebuild the Xandarian people, the world mind, as it did with, with Ryder, um, creates a new sentient planet by using ego, by bonding with ego. And now, of course, that didn't last but that is another uh, kettle of fish. That's one of the last places we saw Ego as the planet-sized manifestation of the Xandarian world mind that would go on to be called New Xandar. Now, like his movie counterpart, comics, Ego is also a father. Illa is a recent creation. She was born when a large chunk of Ego was jettisoned into space, leaving Illa to make her way in the galaxy alone. One could also, I guess, uh, consider Ego Prime to be Ego's child, the Regellian colonizer Tana Nile hoped that samples of ego substance could be used to seed dead worlds with life and thus make them inhabitable for the Regellian colonizers. The result of that terraforming experiment, unfortunately, is Ego Prime, a somewhat smaller but still giant sentient being, like a smaller ego but with a human body. Bad news all around. Another celestial being is the Beyonder an omnipotent being from a dimension outside of the multiverse, beyond even the omniverse. Now, okay, so the multiverse is every possible timeline and dimension within the Marvel Universe. The omniverse is every metafictional dimension encompassing all fictional worlds. So Alice in Wonderland and... Uh, Friday Night Lights all I exist within the Omniverse. Uh, <laughs> bring him in. Wow. Bring Riggins into the MCU immediately. Now, the Beyonder is best known as the antagonist of Marvel's 1984-85 Secret Wars crossover, a formative Marvel comics storyline and an early example of the kind of uh, battle royale style, zero-sum storytelling that has become so popular in pop culture over the last 20 years. The Beyonder in that storyline, bored, these guys get so bored when they're super powerful, man, bored by his infinite power, travels to Earth in the form of a, a white dude in a, a leather jacket who's obviously watched too many Michael Jackson videos, 
curly hair mullet, white leather jacket, matching kind of parachute pants. And he transports basically all of Earth's superheroes to a place called Battleworld where he makes them fight each other just so he can feel something. Weird guy. What about Eternity? We briefly mentioned Eternity here and and it's and Eternity's possible cameo in this film. Eternity is the anthropomorphic manifestation of the multiverse. So Eternity is a being who contains infinite possibilities of infinite universes, which includes infinite versions of itself. Now, Eternity's power, as you would guess from that, is just off the grid. We rarely see Eternity, but when Eternity does show up, it is, of course, a very big deal. Whereas Doctor Strange defends our dimension from extra-dimensional threats, Eternity only shows up when the multiverse is under threat from forces beyond our multiverse or from within the multiverse. Recently, in the Time Runs Out storyline, the Illuminati, a shotgun alliance of uh, the 616 universe's most influential leaders, King Black Bolt of the Inhumans, Doctor Strange, Tony Stark, Reed Richards, T'Challa, Namor, and Captain America, discover that the multiverse is in terminal decay. And this took the form of incursions, dimensions physically colliding with, with other dimensions to stave off the threat to their universe, the Illuminati took actions that invariably led to the destruction of entire realities. They managed to keep Earth-616 intact, but could not stop the collapse, which in turn meant the death of eternity. Don't worry, though, after the reconstitution of the multiverse uh, by a version of Reed Richards, eternity is back and better than ever. Eternity also has a sibling, Infinity is Eternity's sister and counterpart. Like Eternity, there are infinite infinities, one for each universe of the multiverse. Together, Eternity and Infinity spanned everything in the universe, all the matter, all the energy, all the space, and all the time. The infinite Eternities and Infinities of the multiverse are overseen themselves by the singular cosmic entity called the Living Tribunal. Now, so unlike Eternity Infinity, there is only, only one living tribunal. And that one living tribunal exists in all the planes of the multiverse at once. So essentially the living tribunal can be in various places, in various dimensions, throughout time at the same time. Don't think about it. Like, ten, like they say in Tenet, don't think about it, just feel it. The tribunal's job is to safeguard the multiverse and maintain balance within it. If that sounds basically like what I just described as eternity's job, you're right, and I have no idea what to tell you. The official handbook of the Marvel Universe has the following to say, quote, Possessing untold power, the tribunal will act to prevent one of the universes from amassing more concentrated mystical power than any of the other universes. The tribunal will also act to prevent a grave imbalance between the mystical forces allied with good, and those allied with evil in one universe. Now, considering that there are entire dimensions populated by demons or vampires or what have you, I think it's fair to say the tribunal is spectacularly bad at its job. Like, at maintaining balance is bad. Not doing it. Now, the tribunal has a really interesting look. Gold body and three faces or aspects to its being. The front face, uh, which is just exposed, is the one that stands for equity. On its left side, it has a half-hooded face, which stands for revenge. And on the right side, there is a fully-hooded face, which stands for necessity. I don't understand what 
those things have to do with each other or what they symbolize, but that is what that is. Stanley and Mary Severin, creators of the Living Tribunal, please drop the strain <laughs> that you guys were smoking when you guys created the Living Tribunal. During the Time Runs Out arc, the Beyonders, which is the race that the Beyonder comes from, killed the Living Tribunal in their attempt to invade and conquer the multiverse and left the Living Tribunal's uh, body on Earth's moon. Really makes Mordo wielding the staff of the Living Tribunal relic in Doctor Strange like an iconic flex. I mean, it's an unbelievable flex that he has that. Truly crazy. <laughs> now, Marvel's multiverse has some really, really wacky worlds, as you would expect, including... Uh, the zombie dimension, the catalyst to Marvel's Marvel zombie books. One of these, which we mentioned briefly in our Doctor Strange pod, is the dream dimension. The dream dimension is linked to the 616 dimension and the astral plane and is an influence in the dreams of human beings who access it uh, subconsciously and also shape it. It's like interwoven with the plane of reality and the astral plane together. The nightmare realm which is exactly what it sounds like, is a so-called shard realm of the dream dimension. So a sub-realm of that. And it is ruled by uh, the entity known as Nightmare. Nightmare is an extremely powerful demon who is capable of taking on powerful beings, like super powerful beings, celestial powerful. Nightmare once captured eternity. So yeah, pretty powerful. During the Fear Itself storyline, Nightmare took on a Sauron-like role, slipping into the nightmares of humans to harvest their raw fear, and then taking that to craft the Fear Crown, a powerful weapon. But that that kind of pissed off Nightmare's uh, allies, the Fear Lords, but that's a story for another day. For less abstract cosmic entities, Hard to compete with Galactus as a cosmic uh, figure, the eater of worlds, of course. Galen, uh, the being that would become Galactus, is the only survivor of the universe which preceded the 616 universe. So uh, before the 616 universe, there was another universe that collapsed into uh, the eventual entropy of that universe, and only Galen managed to survive that collapse. As his power grew, his dietary requirements, of course, grew as well. My guy needs calories, needs to eat. Growing boy needs to eat to maintain that size. Over the course of countless millennia, he uh, tweaked the environment within his spaceship and his the, the design of his armor in order to better harness the energies that sustain him. And then he went into a sort of gestation period. When he emerged, he was Galactus, the devourer, capable of a destroying entire attack fleets with the wave of his hand. And the price of that power is, my guy gets hungry. My guy just needs to eat. And when Galactus needs to eat, the only thing big enough to satiate that hunger is the big old juicy planet. Galactus uses his elemental converter, which is this vast, incredibly cool looking piece of machinery of his own design, which uh, transforms the matter of planets into energy, which is then piped into his armor. This energy is called the power cosmic, and that is the source of Galactus's power. Now, Galactus may be the destroyer of worlds, but he's also the creator of jobs. He employs a herald to scout out the universe in search of 
suitable planets and to announce his coming to the unlucky population of those planets. Galactus, of course, has had numerous heralds throughout the years. He always has a falling out with his heralds. It's a, it's a, it, a lot of turnover in Galactus Co. And these heralds, of course, have hailed from numerous worlds. Galactus imbues these beings with the power cosmic, making them immensely powerful in their own rights, like off the charts powerful. Just a fraction of Galactus's power makes them some of the most powerful beings in the galaxy. The Silver Surfer, of course, Mallory's, uh, Mallory's favorite, is one of Galactus's former heralds, probably the most yes. famous of those. Like the Surfer, Galactus's heralds um, each have power sets that speak to some innate quality that they have. The power cosmic takes root in them, and what emerges is something particular to each being. It's like the serum. I love it. Yeah, it's a, it is like the serum. Terex, for instance, is essentially an earthbender, can control earth and rock. Nova, a firebender, formerly the human Frankie Ray, developed fire abilities. Red Shift can open dimensional portals with his swords and so on and so forth. The energies harnessed by Galactus are absolutely immense. The energies contained in his body are immense. In the Annihilation storyline, which we mentioned in the previous uh, Guardians of the Galaxy pod. Annihilus takes Galactus prisoner, no small feat, and turns him into a, a cosmic bomb, essentially, capable of wiping out the entire universe. Okay, let's talk about aliens. We uh, see this, meet the Sovereign and uh, see the Ravagers, but meet the Sovereign. The Sovereign are the important one. Important one. We see them in this film. They are, uh, they are particular to this film, created for the film. They do not exist in the comics. But of course, there are numerous races that the producers of Guardians of the Galaxy 2 could have called on uh, to populate the film. The Badoon are one, are a humanoid race. They're older than the Kree and the Skrulls. And uh, long ago, a civil war based on gender cleaved the Badoon into two societies. So they exist as one society ruled by a king and another one ruled by a queen. There are the Brood, introduced in the pages of the X-Men, a parasite parasitic insectoid race certain appearance and behavior to the xenomorphs from the alien films there's a queen and they the queen uh, runs everything within the culture of the brood we briefly discussed the shyar during our dark world podcast they are an avian like humanoid species basically human beings with these kind of feathers on their head they are very technologically advanced and have a large space empire and a religion based on the deities shara and kithri I'd expect once the X-Men uh, are established in the MCU that we could meet the Shire. The Watchers, who we see in this film, are an ancient race, possibly the oldest civilized race in the universe, the 616 universe. And they are dedicated to impartially observing and recording crucial events throughout the universe. Uh, the Watcher, who is responsible for Earth and Earth's solar system, is named Uatu. And Watu is, of course, set to make his MCU debut with the What If series on Disney Plus, where he will be voiced by the great Jeffrey Wright. Amazing. Cannot wait. Woo! That was a fun one. Mal, what was the story you told me about Zardu the Hasselfrau? He owned a magic nugget? So let's collect six of our favorite insights and observations from this film, like so many Infinity Stones lightning around style. You go first. Number one, Stanley Watcher Informant. 
Gunn didn't just take Baby Groot to the tailor. He took his movie there and crammed as many stingers as he could into the custom-stitched Ravager suit of the closing minutes of this film. As mentioned, there are five stingers in Guardians 2, and three of the five are, are rife with comics canon. So let's start with Stan Lee's stinger, which, just as his brief cameo, during the film, amid the Rocket Groot, Yondu, Kraglin, 700 space jump sequence, places him among the Watchers. Mid-film, we see Lee in a spacesuit surrounded by three Watchers saying, oh man, anyway, before I was so rudely interrupted, at that time I was a Federal Express That's man. Great. In the final stinger, we return to that same cosmic setting and hear Lee say this as the Watchers walk away. Hey, fellas, hey, wait, where are you going? Hey, you were supposed to be my lift home. How will I get out of here? Hey, oh, gee, I got so many more stories to tell. Oh, guys, oh, gee. Now, these scenes fueled two already vibrant, vibrant fan theories. First, that Stanley has actually played the same character across all of his MCU cameos. And second, that the character in question is either a Watcher or somehow associated with the Watchers, the cosmic beings that Jason just explained. That Lee's character in Guardians 2 references his work for FedEx, a.k.a. clearly the cameo with Rhodey and Tony Stank in Captain America Civil War, would seem unambiguously to support this idea of a link across films. And in the latest installment of our ongoing Binge Mode Marvel series, if Kevin Feige says it, it's canon, we present this quote from Feige during the Guardians 2 press junket. Quote, Stanley clearly exists, you know, above and apart from the reality of all the films. So the notion that he could be sitting there on a cosmic pit stop during the jump gate sequence in Guardians was something very fun. James had that idea and we shot that cameo and loved it so much, you know, you see it a couple times in the movie. It wasn't in for a long time and we put it back in toward the end of the process where he references that time he was a Federal Express agent. We thought it would be fun to put that in there because that really says, so wait a minute, he's this same character who's popped up in all these films, end quote. Who better for that character to be than someone in the Watcher orbit, as fans had long speculated? The question that these two scenes pose then is whether Lee himself is a Watcher who maybe looks a bit different than the other watchers do and isn't taking his observe don't act mandate very seriously if he's guzzling thousand year old booze with thor at avengers parties or is he someone in the watcher's orbit who reports back in a fashion such as this to impart what he's seen in case that impacts the mission in some way well from the film's credits we have to assume it's the latter as he is listed as the watcher's informant here great gig for our guy. Number two, Starhawk and the Guardians. I mentioned in the sanctum of our first Guardians pod that the characters who comprise the MCU's Guardians of the Galaxy are not the original Guardians from the comics. Earlier incarnations of the comics group featured Starhawk, a.k.a. Stakar Agord, who does more than just talk about the horns of freedom and the colors of a gourd. <laughs> His evolution from Stakar into Starhawk comes when he morphs with Alita. Alita bears some mentioning here because she's one of the characters who appears with Stakar in the Ravager reunion stinger, also president. Martinex, the crystalline being who we met earlier in the film on Contraxia, Charlie 27, played for mere seconds at the funeral and in the stinger by Ving Rames, more Ving. Krugar, who flashes the thumbs-up emoji using the mystic arts mandalas and who is a sorcerer supreme in the comics, 
and Mainframe, the robotic head voiced by Miley Cyrus. Amazing. <laughs> this felt like a clear setup for a spinoff at the time, possibility fueled in large part by this quote from Gun to BuzzFeed's Adam B. Very in 2017. She, meaning Miley Cyrus, knows that there's a chance that character may go on and become a bigger thing. That's a possibility. This very April, Gunn addressed those comments from Martin X actor Michael Rosenbaum about returning to the franchise by tweeting, for the record, I think at Michael Rosenbaum was simply saying that was the plan was for them to come back in the MCU at some point, not necessarily in volume three. So it appears there's still hope, as there is for another character teased in volume two. Which brings us to number three, Adam Warlock. We talked about Adam Warlock a bit in our first Guardians pod when we mentioned that the Adam name drop from Aisha and the Golden Cocoon and this third stinger clearly harkens the arrival of Adam Warlock, which was kind of retcon of sorts because Gunn had previously said that the cocoon in the Collector's Museum was based on Warlock's comics history. In an April 2017 interview with Slash Films, Peter Scretta, Gunn said, quote, He's not in Infinity War, but he will be a part of the future Marvel cosmic universe and a pretty important part of that. Though Gunn has subsequently said that he hasn't specifically confirmed that Warlock will be in the third Guardians film, the singer portends that eventuality quite clearly. Maybe not the third movie, but it's happening at some point. Not only because of the utterance of the name Adam and the presence of Warlock's signature, albeit updated cocoon-like vessel and Gunn's comments in the wake of the film, but also because of who says it. Aisha, though Jason noted the sovereign aspect is different here, Aisha is the her to Adam's him in the comics. Just as Aisha states here in the singer, the Adam of the comics is the product of the push to create basically the ideal version of life, who happens to be golden. And in his comics case, to have a lot of interactions with Thanos and the Infinity Gems and quite a run with the Soul Stone, so you can understand, of course, why when this movie first came out back in 2017, before Infinity War, people really thought that Adam Warlock was going to come into play in the Infinity Saga. How will this eventually manifest in the MCU now that the Infinity Saga plot has concluded? Can't wait to find out. Influenced heavily by the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, which makes a lot of sense for Adam Warlock's look. Amazing. Number four, one more gun Easter egg tease binge heads. You'll recall that in our first pod, we talked about the one Drax turd size Easter egg gun said no viewers had yet found until April 25th, 2020, when he gave the tap back thumbs up emoji to Eric Voss's new Rockstars Theory video about the message buried in the film's coordinates. It's not quite as seismic of an egg hunting update, but it's worth noting that Guardians 2 has also sparked discussion between Gunn and the fan base about buried treasure and clues. And in this case, the treasure are buried in piles of those anonymous children's bones. On April 23rd, 2020, Gunn tweeted during a Guardians 2 watch along the following message. There are tons of Easter egg skulls in that pile of egos murdered children. How uh, normal and charming. <laughs> It's not like the first skeletal clue in the Guardians verse, as we noted before, the horse-like skeleton quill dances with on Morag appears to be a Beta Ray Bill-esque Corbinite body, perhaps a chameleon. Tap binge mode on Twitter to let us know which Easter eggs you see in the skull pile. <laughs> Number five, Guardians Inferno, the music video. David Hasselhoff <laughs> is, as Quill mentions during his funeral speech for Yondu, more than just an imaginary father figure for Star-Lord. He's, as Quill says, quote, a singer, an actor from Earth, really famous guy. That 
singer mention comes into play with a little musical number called Guardians of the Galaxy Inferno, which Gunn and composer Tyler Bates wrote and which plays over the end credits of the movie. But that's not it. It also appears as a full three and a half minute music video on the DVD and Disney Plus also, of course, available on YouTube. And it stars David Hasselhoff. <laughs> and various members of the Guardians cast in costume as extras. The David Yaravesky directed video features a lot of glitter, a lot of spandex, a lot of mentions of Zardu Hasselfrau. There's also just an extraordinary amount of jest air on display. And the final lyric is, in these times of hardship, just remember, we are a group. It is weird and amazing and so just weird. totally Guardians-y. <laughs> In every respect. And in August of 2017, Gunn shared the making of story behind the music video on his Facebook page. Very long posted explanation. You can check that out yourself to get all of the little nuggets, but some highlights. Gunn said that, quote, Mecco's disco-infused version of the Star Wars theme was their big influence that they decided long before filming the video to name their band the Sneepers, as a nod to the Marvel aliens, there's also a <laughs> ensuing portion of the Facebook post about how tried to get Sneepers into the film but couldn't because Marvel noted that it means clitoris in the Icelandic <laughs> language. There you are. What a fact. St- Stanley and Guillermo, Guns Post continues, were among the initial cameo asks. And because so many members of the film's cast wound up being in it, Chris Pratt and Zoe Saldana were actually mad that they had not been asked to participate. And so then they filmed their bits and added them in. Quote from Guns Post. They're both full team players who love bell bottoms and fake mustaches and Rooker not being able to hit a keyboard in time as much as the next person. Number six, more Easter eggs and nuggets. A couple of figures from the Surprise Collectors Museum cameos in the first Guardians film return here, including Howard the Duck with a line. Boy. Who's trying to get his peak wet on Contraxia. Our guy Cosmo the Space Dog also appears Love Cosmo in the end credits. Strangely, the end credits also feature another character who isn't in either Guardians movie, the Grandmaster from Thor Ragnarok, who's one of the characters dancing in the visual effects portion of the credits. Speaking of Ragnarok in that film, Thor loses an eye on Sakaar, which he replaces in Infinity War with the butt-smuggled prosthetic that Rocket gifts him. Amazingly. (gasps) Really should have watched that. Please. (laughs) You must watch it. Amazingly, it is not the eye that Groot got for Rocket on Taserface's ship here. It's the one Rocket stole on Contraxia. Speaking of Contraxia, before we visit that planet with Yondu and Starhawk, we crash land on Bearheart with our pals, that planet home to the Sagittarians do not appear, will be familiar to comics readers from the Hulk's arcs. Shouts the Galaxy Master before crash landing on Bearheart, Quill tracked on Sovereign the migration of the Abelisk, a purgle-looking being, and he did so using what appears to be a modified Mattel football console? The Zune could never. Mercifully, the Zune didn't have to boot up a tune for Peter's grandfather, who's behind the wheel of the blue SUV that Ego's expansion blob nearly swallows in Missouri. On the subject of funerals, Yandu's pyre contains a few treasures, including the jeweled frog Yandu got from the broker on Xandar while hunting Quill. And finally, we must note that the vomiting baby Groot reminds us <laughs> of another cherished baby in our lives, Grogu! Yes. Who suddenly purchased macaroons in Mando after a bumpy Razor Crest ride. 
Oh, two of our greatest loves. Jason? Yes. I win. I win. I bested you in combat this season on Binge Mode Marvel. We are debating the winner of every episode because whosoever holds this hammer, if they be worthy, shall possess the power of binge. Yes. What a showdown today. Rocket versus Baby Groot, the dynamic duo. Quick, quick rundown. We will each have 60 seconds to make our opening statement, 30 seconds to make our rebuttal, and then it'll go to the binge heads to vote on their winner for Guardians 2. Steve, flip the coin. Jay will call it. Heads. It is heads. Of course it's fucking heads. Of course it's fucking heads. What is going on? I, it's Ridiculous. just truly, it's truly, it's truly cosmic. Anyway, okay. You going first or second? I'll go first. Why not? Here we go. Three, two, one. Our movie opens with a scene, an action scene, an, a magnetic action scene of our heroes taking down an interdimensional beast on the home world of the Sovereign. And yet... We're constantly cutting away to Baby Groot because Baby Groot is that magnetic, that fascinating. We just want to see him as the action happens in the background. Baby Groot in this movie never steals from anyone. He never commits any crime. He only commits one murder. And I think you would say that one was justified. (laughs) He breaks Yondu and Rocket out of the brig, out of Taser Face's clutches. He couldn't have done it without him. He was only a baby and he followed the instructions. He managed to do it. He delivers the bomb to Ego, thus taking down the big bad. And yes, as I mentioned up top, and it has to be mentioned again, every time he is on the screen, he is cute. He is delightful. He is a wonderful, wonderful presence. And he allows uh, Quill to connect with that feeling of fatherhood by taking on the father role at the end of the film, playing cat scenes with Baby Groot sitting on his lap. Oh, what a case. It's a good one. I love Groot. Thank you. It's hard to, it's hard to, it's hard to. It's hard not to love Groot. Yeah. Baby Groot is just a little precious bobby. And I love him. Sorry if that's a bad way to start my case. <laughs> Play that, Steve. I Keep love that him. in. <laughs> Keep it in, Steve. <clears throat> I'm ready to make my case for Rocket. Okay. Please begin the clock in three. Two, one, go. Ah, Rocket, our professional asshole. The best. His tech is amazing. The spacesuits, the arrow rigs. Tony could never. He takes on the entire Ravager crew alone, booby traps the planet. If Nebula hadn't gotten loose, thanks, Groot, Rocket would have bested them completely. He's willing to sacrifice the battery hall as long as Yondu doesn't hurt Groot. His protective instincts are inspiring, even when he's acting all tough. Takes the escape ship to Ego. Acts again, very tough, but it's really to help Quill and everybody else. Mantis calls him a crappy puppy. (laughs) Love that. Packed a detonator, makes a bomb. You know he loves that. Does it from the stolen batteries. Teaches Groot how to use it, by the way. Looks for tape, can't find it, because as he points out, he has to do everything, and he made the emotional breakthrough, Jason. The emotional breakthrough in and this that's film. Time. He does it all. Love Rocket. He's great. Let's hear the rebuttal. Here's, the, here's my rebuttal. Three, 
two, one, go. Love Rocket to death. Uh, the Guardians wouldn't be in all this trouble if he hadn't stolen the batteries from the client that hired them to do a job. That was just egregious and over the top, and there was no reason to do that. Additionally, he was... Uh, Really happy and very ready to leave Quill behind to his fucking death on Planet Ego. Was just going to let that happen. Alas, Rocket, love him to death. He is a flawed character who can't help but steal. He is a thief. And that's time. That's time. That's time. Steve, I'm ready for my rebuttal. One, two, three, go. Flawed characters are the point of the Guardians franchise. Baby Groot, a gem as noted, but is this the best of Groot really? Punches an Orloni, unkind, freeze Nebula, very tough look for our guy, Baby Groot. You mentioned the escape, he needed Kraglin, couldn't find the fin, Kraglin found the fin. Groot was pulling underwear and human toes, okay? Also, Rocky had to tell him how to use the bomb like 500 times. It's a baby! Have to give credit to Rocket's character arc and, and emotional breakthrough. Time. One of the hearts of the film. Well, well both. Folks, love them both. <laughs> we've made our cases, and it goes to you now. Please vote on who you think won this episode, won this movie. Is it Rocket Raccoon or is it Little Baby Groot? Let the record state that I considered picking Yandu, but I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't put myself in a situation where you just <laughs> repeated the names of the dead for. I don't know. That would have been a five-hour segment, I guess. Well, friends, it's called a podcast. It's what everybody's listening to on Earth nowadays. Just ask Steve Allman, Isaac Lee, and Zach Kramer, our indispensable producers and researcher. Remember, if you're looking for past seasons of Binge Mode, Binge Mode Game of Thrones, Binge Mode Harry Potter, Binge Mode Star Wars, Binge Mode Weekly, they're available for you to listen to in full for free exclusively on Spotify. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the Quinjet. Keep exploring this story and that you'll join us again next time for our discussion of Spider-Man Homecoming with our good friend, Tom. That should be a fun one. Until then, remember, he may have been your father, but he wasn't your podcast. During this fight, I've seen a lot of changing in the ways you feel about me and the ways I feel about you. In here, there were two guys killing each other. But I guess that's better than 20 million. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that if I could change and you could change, everybody could change, and then we'll hear the horns of freedom and the colors of our oh God. We'll flash on our graves together. The colors of our gourd, the infinity glove of Thanos, the will of the Beyonder, the hunger of Galactus, all of that powers us to find peace together between the USA and the USSR. Thank you. I've been Rocky Balboa. Good night. <laughs>